You're here this morning. How many of us have watching the game or the new year coming in? That's good, man. You get the star. You get the gold star. You're here. You never, how many just skipped it all and went to bed normal time? Okay. Yeah, that's all right, too. Yeah, big game last night. Didn't go the way most people wanted it to go around here, but uh, couldn't ask for a better game, right? That's good stuff. Yeah. Great. But beginning of a new year, first Sunday, first day of the new year. That's exciting. I know like some of you, yesterday I wrapped up reading through the Bible in a year and started again uh, today. And if you've never done that before, I'll suggest uh, MacArthur's Daily Bible. You can download that online and just do it on an iPad is how I do it. And, and just great stuff. It gives you a portion of different parts of scripture as you read through. We are starting a series. We, we kind of had a pre-start over Christmas in John 1. We're starting a series on the book of John. And if you think about it, the Bible is by far the most popular book all over the world. Most popular book in the world would be number one bestseller. If they included the Bible, it would be number one every year on the New York, New York Times bestseller list. Bible's always number one. And John is probably the most popular book in all the Bible. So here's the most popular book inside the most popular book, and that's what we're going to be looking at. But besides that, I want you to see something else. You know, all of us get an impression of Jesus. And unfortunately, especially in our culture, that impression of Jesus comes from, you know, paintings, maybe stained glass, uh, old movies that they've seen. And sometimes the impression of Jesus just comes from the culture that you live in itself. But here we're going to look at a book written by John, one of Jesus' first disciples. He was one of three disciples that were sort of on the inner circle, the closest to Jesus. And we're going to, over the next four months, just go through chapter by chapter at how John describes Jesus, John's history. And John is writing at the end of his life. He was probably the youngest disciple. He was the only disciple that wasn't killed for his faith. And he's exiled to this island, Patmos, and he's writing toward the end of his life. And so we have a lot to learn from John. I'm really excited about jumping into it. Are you excited about this? Hey, we sang victory in Jesus this morning. That should wake you up and get you pumped up, right? All right, we're gonna start, yeah, with John. And just by way of recap, we've been talking at Christmas, we went into John 1, and we were talking about light came into the world. And as a matter of fact, John 1.14 said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John went the furthest back. He went all the way back to creation to talk about the coming of Christ, because Jesus is actually eternal. And now he's going to start with Jesus' ministry. 
And there's some things that happen that John doesn't tell us here. For example, um, after Jesus' birth, uh, Herod actually tried to kill him as a baby and sent his soldiers after the wise men came and, uh, and ended up killing all male children two years and younger in Bethlehem. But Joseph had been warned, Jesus' dad, Joseph had been warned, and they went down to Egypt. And they had some means because they had those gifts that the wise men had, had given them. When Herod the Great dies and his son, Herod Antipas, takes over, Mary and Joseph, they come back to Israel and they actually, set, they actually settle in the town Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. And we don't hear a lot about the childhood of Jesus except for when he was 12 years old, his family went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And, and they went with a lot of people from Nazareth and there was kind of a caravan and Jesus was 12 and so he could kind of look after himself. And as they were all heading back, after they got on their journey, they realized Jesus wasn't there. They go back to Jerusalem. They find him. It's three days since they've seen him. And, uh, and Jesus says, hey, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? And he's with the teachers in the temple. That's the last mention we have of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. And we assume after Jesus was 12 and before his public ministry, which Jesus starts when he's 30, that Joseph has died because there's mentions of Mary, but not Joseph from that point on. And so then Tim introduced us on Christmas Day to John's message. John the Baptist, who came, different John, John the Baptist, not John the disciple who wrote this book. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He came saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And he pointed to Jesus as the Messiah and said, behold, the Lamb of God. <clears throat> And at that time, when Jesus is about 30 years old, he goes public with his ministry. And John records, already covered this on Christmas Day, that Jesus' first followers were two disciples, Andrew and an unnamed disciple, which is kind of unusual because he names all the other first disciples. And probably this unnamed disciple is John because John actually never refers to himself as John in his entire book. And so we're assuming this, the two first disciples were Andrew and probably John himself, the author here. And then Andrew invites his brother Peter and says, hey, we found the Messiah. As a matter of fact, every time Andrew's mentioned in this entire book, he's always either pointing to Jesus, someone to Jesus as Messiah, or referring them to Jesus as Messiah. He's always doing that. Jesus calls Philip, who then invites Nathaniel, saying, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You gotta be kidding me, where's he from, what? And he says, come and see. And, and so right there, you have the first five disciples of Jesus. And it's interesting because they're just, hey, come and check this out. And by inviting people just to come and check Jesus out, which is exactly what we should be doing, actually what's going on in a lot of our churches today is a misunderstanding of discipleship. People have turned discipleship 
is this process where you go and find another follower of Jesus and then teach them more about Jesus. But actually, discipleship is more about you go find somebody who's not a follower of Jesus and then you show them and teach them about Jesus. And so this is the way the book opens. And now we're in chapter 2. And then on the third day after Nathaniel, they attend a wedding. And here's how it goes. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of, of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, Cana, Cana happens to be where Nathaniel's from. And it's about eight miles north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And there's a wedding there. And somehow Mary, Jesus' mother, is somehow involved at the wedding. And Jesus is invited. Not only Jesus, but his disciples, which is at least those five people that I just mentioned. And so they all go to the wedding, which is interesting in itself. Jesus is not, no brownie points for inviting Jesus. I mean, nobody knows who Jesus is at this point. But Jesus is invited to this wedding. Probably an interesting guy, a fun guy. We sh we, he shows up in the Gospels a lot, attending parties. Seemed like a great guy to be around. And then this is what happens, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, Jesus is just a guest there. And so this is one of those things. How many of you ever had a mom who rather than told you what to do, would just hint at what you should do? Like instead of saying, take out the trash, say something like this. Uh, by the way, the trash is full. You know, she's not telling you take out the trash. She's just letting you know what needs to be done. Or, hey, the dog's over by the door waiting. You know, anybody experience that? You guys are still sleeping probably. <laughs> but that seems to be what's going on here. I don't know. Because she goes to Jesus and says, hey, they ran out of wine. This is a big deal in the first century. Weddings typically lasted an entire week. Uh, if, if it was... A person's first marriage, they usually got married on a Wednesday. If they were widowed or something, usually on a Thursday was kind of the culture there. But, but the party would last for a week. And it was the groom who was responsible to provide for the wedding feast. And so, big deal. This is a very small town. Probably just about everybody's there. And it's the groom's responsibility. As a matter of fact, it's, it's almost like a legal thing that the groom needs to do this that he's going re, to be responsible to provide for all the feast and especially the wine. Because it's kind of like, hey, I'm a grown man now, and I can provide for my wife here, whom I'm marrying, and I can take care of her, and to show you that, I'm going to take care of all of you for a week, kind of a deal. But the wine runs out. Major social embarrassment, huge faux pas, this is the kind of an embarrassment, not in a good way, not like at a wedding where something kind of weird happens or something you don't want to, or somebody faints and you sort of laugh about it for the next 30 years. Not that. This is a bad deal. This is kind of a social stigma will be on this couple maybe for the rest of their lives. Because what? What's wrong with this guy? 
He's getting married. He's going to take care of this, his wife all, all of his life, but he couldn't handle taking care of the party arrangements. You know, it's that kind of a deal. And so very awkward. Jesus' mother, Mary, she sees this, and she goes, to Mary, she goes to Jesus and lets him know. Now, Mary's never seen Jesus do a miracle, but she has been visited by an angel before he was born. And she has given birth as a virgin. And she has heard what the shepherds had to say. And she was there when the wise men showed up and brought kingly gifts. So she knows something's up. She knows, obviously, that Jesus is the Messiah. But I don't think she has any idea what Jesus is going to do. Maybe a hint. It's just, I'm going to tell Jesus, and somehow Jesus is going to fix this problem. And so the disciples, at least these five, they're sitting there to see, okay, this is, this is kind of weird. Never been to a wedding where the wine ran out. And now Jesus' mom Mary's telling Jesus and basically asking him to do something about it. What's going to happen? You, you, they're totally tuned in to what's going on because a disciple would literally follow their teacher and sort of do what he did. So they are tuned in on what's going on. They're going to see how he responds. And here's how Jesus responds in verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? And the us is, you, Mom, you and I. What's this got to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Very interesting. He starts off, Woman, and if this sounds disrespectful to us today, I'm, I got to tell you, if I approached my mom and I was around my dad and I said, woman, that would not go well for me. Even if I was 30 years old, that wouldn't go well for me. But it's, it's less disrespectful in Greek but there's something going on here. What's happening is Jesus is respectfully putting a distance between he and his mother. He doesn't say mom. He doesn't say mother. He says woman. Not disrespectful, but it's putting a distance. He's basically saying our relationship is not the same as it used to be. Our relationship is different now. I have to be about my father's will. And so this is what's going on. This, this is what's in that mother. And so Mary's, but even though Mary gets this kind of response, it doesn't really put her off. She's still confident. She thinks, hey, something's going to happen here. And we know that because of her instructions to the servants. And Jesus says, hey, my hour has not come. When Jesus says that, my hour's not, he says it several times through his ministry, it's always pointing to the crucifixion. My hour has not come, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come. But then at Gethsemane, right before he's arrested, and he's sweating blood, and he says, my hour has come. And so 
Notice there's some deeper truths here that we need to learn as this all works out. This is Jesus' first miracle. Verse 6, And now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. The head waiter is sort of the MC, the master of ceremonies. And so they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. And probably the groom, he may not have a clue here. He may be going, uh, what, what are you talking about? What, what, what? Um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, that's right. That's the way I did it. You know, we don't know how he's reacting to this, what he knows. And then next verse says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what's going on here? Jesus creates 120 to 180 gallons of wine in these stone water pots, which was a lavish gift to this couple, probably more than they would drink. And they used to dilute wine. There's a whole bunch of stuff there, but probably more than they would use at the feast. But here's what's interesting. They've run out of wine. So what that means is there's a bunch of containers that used to have wine that are now empty. Wine skins, pots, whatever they, jars, whatever they used for the wine for the feast, it's empty. The, you know, the wine's used up, so there's all these empty containers left around. Jesus doesn't use those empty containers. Jesus points to these ceremonial water pots, these big pots that were used for cleansing. And this is, goes back to part of the law. And this was just a reminder to the Jewish people that they had this ceremonial washing for purification. It was actually just a reminder to the people that God is holy and pure and we are sinners. And so before we go and approach a holy and righteous God, we need to, to sort of be cleaned up. And so they would have this physical cleaning that was just a reminder of that they needed to be pure in order to approach God. And so Jesus uses these containers made out of stone. The reason they were stone and not clay is because they believed that stone pots would not be contaminated as easy as clay pots. And so ceremonial washing water was always in stone pots. And so that's, that's why that was. So this is what he does. And so you might wonder why. Why is this Jesus' first miracle? You know, this is him inaugurating his ministry. This is the God of the universe inaugurating his ministry, his public ministry, 
with kind of a private miracle that maybe the guests didn't even know about in a backwater part of a corner of the world. Why? No healing, no raising from the dead, no thousands of people fed, just wine is created for a celebration of marriage and maybe the people don't even know for the most part where it came from. They, just the disciples and Jesus and the servants even know about it. I think he's, he's telling us a deeper truth here. What's happening with this ceremonial washing <clears throat> is we know from Mark chapter 7 that this washing had become a tradition of the Jewish leaders. They took the ceremonial cleansing and purification rites that was in the law, they expanded them to include washing before meals. And all of a sudden, what was meant as a symbol that we wash, as a symbol of our recognition that we are sinful approaching a holy and righteous God, over the years now, it has just become that they're washing, that this is their tradition. They wash their hands before meals. But they've actually lost the implication, the picture of what it actually signifies. The right became the end, rather than this is just a picture of us approaching God. And we know that because Jesus' disciples were criticized for not washing before meals. And if you remember, Jesus responded to that. He actually said, hey, <clears throat> you're worried about eating with dirty hands. It's, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles somebody. It's what comes out of the mouth because that's from their heart. Jesus is all about, no, that whole point was recognition that we are sinful people. And then John makes a transition here in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Notice now, Jesus has brothers. Mary and Joseph went on to have other children, you know, during those at least 12 years. We don't know exactly when Joseph died. So the first miracle was private, and now we have this public sign one, one is just a private miracle of grace and joy. And now we're going to kind of have a public sign that, that's a warning of judgment. And that has to do with the Passover in Jerusalem. We'll pick it up in verse 13. But before we get there, just a reminder on the Passover. The Passover is the most important feast that the Jewish people celebrate. And it is to remind them of what God did in delivering them from Egypt, right? And he did that through Moses, and then Moses used these plagues that God gave him to cause the, the Pharaoh to let the people go, but the Pharaoh didn't want to let go his slave labor force, and so there was a struggle, and it all culminated in the 10th plague and the most severe plague, which was death to all the firstborn. And so Moses says, this is coming to Egypt. But then Moses instructs his people from God, he knew this, that here's what they were to do. They were to take a lamb, an innocent lamb, 
They were to kill it, take its blood, spread the blood over the door frame, the exterior door frame of their house, then eat the meal of the lamb and eat it with your staff and everything like you're ready to go because this is the last plague and Pharaoh's going to let you go and you need to be ready to move because you're delivered. It's kind of a deal. So now, this is hundreds and hundreds of years later, Israel's still celebrating this Passover feast, which is appropriate. And it's a reminder of what God has done for them. So that's what's going on. But when that happened in the first century, Jerusalem was a big city by ancient standards. Maybe about a quarter of a million people lived in Jerusalem. But during Passover... Jews from all over came to celebrate. For example, Jesus' family came every year to Passover. We know that from the account in Matthew 1. And so they are packed in. A million to two million people are within the city walls. And because people are traveling from long distances, they have to bring a sacrifice They're going to kill a lamb. They're going to do the same thing that they did before as as a remembrance. But some of them may have come from boat or, you know, by boat or whatever. However they got there, it was way easier just to be able to buy the lamb. And they're instructed that they could do that locally. And so they wouldn't have to travel with it and exchange their money. And all this is happening in Jerusalem, which was all fine. The problem was, is over time, they move that money transaction stuff, the buying and selling of animals and the money exchange, they moved it up to the Temple Mount proper. And when they did this, the only space for that was the outer courtyard, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. And then they have the court of women and the court of Israel, you know, where it came, became more and more restrictive until you had the Holy of Holies where only one priest one day a year would go in one time. But the court of the Gentiles was actually a place that was the largest area, and it was where the Jewish people were to teach non-Jewish people about God during times like this Passover feast. But the court of the Gentiles is just jammed with people. Josephus, a non-biblical historian from the first century, said that by his estimate, there were 250,000 sacrifices at Passover. That's a lot of animals and a lot of bloodshed. Pick it up in the next verse, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So here all of a sudden, Jesus gets angry. Everybody's got these impressions of Jesus. Some people, as they read through John, they're surprised. Oh, Jesus is invited to a party. Oh, Jesus seems to be somebody that people had fun being around. But then also the next thing we see, and some people have, uh, I didn't really picture Jesus that way. But here in chapter two, we see Jesus angry 
flipping over tables of money, this is causing a major disruption, kind of like a riot, and with a whip, drives out the animals and the people who are selling them and the money changers as he flips their tables over and they're scrambling to get as much as they can to get out of there. All this happens. And some people are like, wow, whoa, Jesus got angry? What? Jesus was angered because of the abuse of the temple. Because this place that was reserved to teach non-Jewish people like us about God at the busiest time of year where there's maybe a million to two million people packed into Jerusalem, all of them trying to get to the temple. They're just sardines up there. And then you have all this extra activity, which was not wrong in itself. It was wrong for two reasons, where they were doing it. And then we also find out later, because Jesus does the same thing in the last week of his ministry, that the people, the leaders were sort of abusing that, charging too much for their animals or their exchange rate. And so we see a Jesus that's not weak or passive. Jesus is not effeminate or somebody who giggles when we sin. Jesus responds with strength and judgment, and that's the right thing. And so the disciples, they see all this, and then they're reminded of a messianic prophecy in Psalms that says this in verse 17. The disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that's what's going on. And, and, and there's some more things I want you to catch here. Continuing in verse 18. Then the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things. So the leaders respond by challenging Jesus' authority. And Jesus answered them. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Okay, and so now there's the history of the temple. Just quick, go through this. The first temple's built about a 1,000 years before Jesus by Solomon. King David gathers his stuff. He's a man of war. God says, no, Solomon will build it. He builds it. They inaugurate it. In, in 586, after God warned them and warned them and warned them, Jerusalem falls, and the temple is destroyed by Babylon, and people are taken captive. God tells them they're going to be kept for 70 years, 70 years later, the people come back, they rebuild the temple under a man named Zerubbabel, and that's the second temple, or Zerubbabel's temple. And then after that, though, Israel never really controls their own destiny. They're, for the next 400 years, they're always con the temple is always controlled by Gentiles. And that goes right up to 39 B.C. In 39 B.C., Herod the Great takes over the temple. 20 years later, in about 19 BC, he starts a project to rebuild the temple. So the temple starts being rebuilt actually about 16 years before Jesus is born. If you're wondering about the math there, there's a, like a two year, two to three year error in the calendar. 
But about 16 years before Jesus is there, Herod starts. And now Jesus is 30. Herod's been building the temple. Now, what Herod did first is he expanded the temple mount to make it a lot bigger. And that courtyard of the Gentiles became a lot bigger. And then the temple itself, he made it bigger and way more impressive than Zerubbabel. Because when Zerubbabel's temple was finished back then, the people were just cried out, yay, they were praising God. But the people that were more than 70 years old and could remember the first temple, Solomon's temple, they actually wept because they're like, this is nothing like Solomon's temple. So Herod's trying to make it a better temple basically to get the support of the Jewish people. And he does that. And so in just a year and a half, the temple and the temple grounds are completed. But for the next 45 years, he's still making finishing touches on the temple complex as a whole. And that's still going on during Jesus's day. And so when Jesus says this, he destroy the temple and I'll build it up. You know, they're going, hey, this is taking 46 years. You know, we're not about to destroy because we, you know, and you're going to rebuild it in three, day, three, three days. That makes zero sense. The weird thing about the temple is you can go there today in Jerusalem and you could stand at the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall, and you could see the retaining stones that are there for the expansion of the Temple Mount that Herod the Great put there that were there during, before the time of Jesus and are the same stones that Jesus would have saw if he entered the temple from the western side. It's there right now. But they asked for a sign. Why do you have this authority? How can you do this? Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rise it up. And they're thinking, yeah, right. Verse 21 explains that. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. It's an example of some truths you don't get until later. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Well, here, the disciples, they're hearing all this. They don't really get it until three years later. Jesus is referring to his body, which is interesting in itself. And he's pointing to his death, burial, and resurrection. Here's the irony in all this. Why is there a temple? Why are Jewish people from all over the world coming to Jerusalem during Passover? Because they want to worship God at the temple. Why? Because they thought that the presence of God is in the temple. And they know a Messiah is coming. And here, these Jewish leaders, they recognize, notice they don't challenge Jesus whether he's right or wrong on, on what he did, because it was right. They're not complaining about that. They're not saying, hey, you shouldn't have done that. They're saying, by what authority do you do it? Because they recognize that Jesus cleansing the temple is actually a messianic sign. So they're saying, oh, you're claiming to be Messiah. Show us a miracle. Show us a sign to prove your claim. And Jesus refers to his death, burial, resurrection. Of course, they do not understand that. But think about the irony. 
All these people all over the world are there in Jerusalem to worship God at the temple because they believed that the presence of God was in the temple. But here at the temple, you have the presence of God, God in flesh, who does a sign by driving out and cleansing the temple that's messianic, but they don't recognize him. And so they ask for a miracle, and then ironically, three years later, they will end up taking part in what happens to make that very miracle come to be, and even when it happens, they still will not believe. They miss it. And then John ends chapter two with how people reacted to all that and how Jesus reacted to them. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And we're right back to what we talked about last time, Christmas, leading up to Christmas. People believe Jesus, they, they believe about Jesus, but that's different than trusting in Jesus. So a lot of people, he's got a lot of, he becomes very popular with a lot of people. A lot of people say, hey, they believe him. They believe. They're seeing this stuff. Hey, I'm with you. But Jesus is not with them because they know they're not all the way there. And what's super interesting is that there's a religious leader, one of the most popular Jewish teachers, is there watching all this play out. A man with a great reputation, a man that was a gifted teacher, he sees all this happening and he sends word to Jesus, hey, I'm in, I want a private conversation with you. And that conversation with Nicodemus is fascinating. But we'll look at that next week. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God, we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to have your word, read your word, study your word. And Father, I, I pray that you'd help us all to be serious about your instructions for us to meet together this year and not give up the habit of meeting together as you instruct us in your word. And Father, here as we start off first few months, we're going through your book of John, written by somebody you love dearly and who was with you every step of your ministry. And Father, help us learn more about you so we could get the right impression about exactly who you are. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. And Father, if there are any who are here that sort of believe Jesus existed, but they've not put their faith or trust in you alone, or that you would continue to, to draw them in, help them to see. 
Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.